welcome to Taste Like Metal. <laughs> Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 246 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I am thinking about getting a fringe. Mick. Mm. Jen, I know you'll have thoughts. I do have thoughts. I'm just delighted that you didn't do it on your birthday week. <laughs> Yeah, I'm always reminded of a line in Ashlyn B's very brilliant This Way Up, where Sharon Horgan's character goes, oh, I'm thinking about getting a fringe. And Ashlyn B's character goes, why, what's wrong? And you're just like, <laughs> it can absolutely smack of crisis. <laughs> but I've been noodling it for a while now. Who doesn't want joy for a week and then have to wear clips for six months? Your hair grows quite fast though, Mick. Does it? I haven't been keeping tabs on it. Sorry, I don't know. Hannah's right, though. You know, it is just hair, isn't it? And I think having grown in our grey, like Hannah and I have, I mean, mm. nothing's going to make me want to put my head in a bin and set fire to it like month six of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I think that's why I think your hair grows fast, because yours seem to come through a lot quicker than mine did. But I mean, we've survived that, so I think I can survive a fringe. Mm. I'm not against it. In fact, why not? It, as discussed, it will grow back if you don't like it. Thanks, guys. You've made me feel better about the choice I've still not made. <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy. Belated happy birthday, Mick. Thanks very much. Belated happy Mother's Day, Jen. Thank you. Belated happy St. Patrick's Day to anyone that celebrates it, which I think is now absolutely everybody. It's a bit nuts, isn't it? If the streets of Highbury and Islington were anything to go by, mm. it is absolutely everybody, yeah. The yeah. thing is, I'm not Irish, so... Neither it doesn't seem to matter. No, <laughs> I don't. You know, I don't celebrate St George's Day, or indeed St David's Day, or what's the other one? St Andrew's Day. So why would I celebrate St Patrick's Day? It's nothing to do with me. Why do Australian backpackers wandering around Cambridge with because they comedy love getting pissed? I celebrate St Patrick's Day. It's, it's the answer to that. It is an American invention, as such. St Patrick's. St Patrick's Day itself isn't. But it was never celebrated in Ireland. Was it not? Basically, the diaspora in America that was sad mm -hmm. and lonely after they'd come over, well, maybe not lonely, sad and homesick after they'd come over, started celebrating it. Hence, it turned into a huge celebration, which then infected the rest of the world with St. Patrick's Day celebrations. My true Irish mates go full on St. Patrick's Day, mm. all of them. And obviously, I celebrate St. Patrick's Day but it's because it's my birthday. <laughs> so, yeah. Historically, until New York started celebrating it, like a, which is in the, I don't know, 18-somethings, there wasn't an organised St. Patrick's Day celebration in Ireland. Was it kind of like the Daniel Day-Lewis era of New York? <laughs> is that when they started uh, celebrating it? Yeah, after the, after the potato famine. So, yeah, 1850s, 1860s. I do like a Guinness, though. Don't get it. Not for it. Sorry. Tastes like metal. Do you think it tastes like metal? I do. All the stuff I don't like tastes like metal. But is it meant to be rich in iron? Don't they say that? Yep, they used to give it to pregnant women. So maybe it is metallic. Don't like fat coke either. Tastes like metal. Also tomatoes. I don't like tomatoes. Tastes like metal. I should start a podcast. <laughs> Hannah, can you elaborate on what about this topic <laughs> you would podcast on? <laughs> I don't know, but I think Taste Like Metal is, is a great name. That's a great starting point. I think most podcasts start off with a great name and then work out what it's going to be from there. Just Hannah going around licking things like she did in that cave. <laughs> <laughs> that tasted like salt.
because it was salt. <laughs> It'd be such a short episode every week. <laughs> Hannah in a studio licks something that's handed to her and she has to say, tastes like metal or just remain silent. <laughs> <laughs> I think it lends itself to a quiz show format better, if I'm honest, Hannah. I'm Jen Offord and I've never been less enthusiastic about learning. Fucking hell. I think that's the saddest fact you've ever know, said, Jen. But let me talk to you about driving theory tests, though. Yeah, we both passed before we had to do a theory test. No, I took a theory test. Did you? When did you learn to drive? Mm. When I was 23. What? This is new information to me. And I'm going to be honest with you, it tastes like metal. (laughs) (laughs) I started started to learn to drive when I was 17 and I didn't want to. And I was kind of strong armed (laughs) into it by my dad because he just wanted to stop giving people lifts. Actually, not that he ever gave us lifts. I think he wanted us to start giving him lifts. Um. And it, I just wasn't ready for it. And I really hated it. And it, it put the wind right up me. And it took me another six, another five years to learn to drive again. So I was 23. So I didn't have to do a theory test. Oh, lady time here. I didn't have to do a theory test because they just asked you like six questions at the end of your practical, Jen. That was it. They were like, do you know mm. what this sign means? Do you know what this is? What what if this happens? And you were like, oh, OK. I think that's fine. Couldn't we have done more of that? And they're trick questions as well. Like, where where should you expect this person to go? I don't know, anywhere? Yes, anywhere, that's the answer. Don't say left or right, anywhere. It's always the right answer. Sounds like you've nailed it. Stop stressing. <sighs> I mean, some of it is helpful, Jen, like what to do when you're aquaplaning or what to do when you're in a skid on ice. Some of it is pretty useful. Yeah, I suppose so. I suppose so. I mean, I've only just figured out kind of what I'm supposed to do with the clutch, so... Later on, I'm chatting with Helen Wills, mum of teenagers, host of the Excellent Teenage Kicks podcast and big champion of the adolescents about navigating those teenage years from both sides of the parenting coin. You said coin. That's just how I say coin. I've been picked on for it all my life, okay. but it's just how I've I pronounce it. I've never noticed you say coin like that ever Yeah, coin. Before. It's coin, isn't it? Do you just say coin? Coin. coin. I don't know. Maybe it's a Wigan thing. Coming up, I'm talking to Evie King about her brilliant new book, Ashes to Admin, which is about her unbelievably interesting job organising funerals for people with nobody else able or willing to do it for them. Like Eleanor Rigby. Yeah, like Eleanor Rigby. In Jenny of the Blocks, I'm talking about prize money and more. And in Rated or Dated, we discuss the joy of Harry Belafonte, the perils of late 80s interior design, and how many ex-boyfriends remind us of Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. No, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Don't do it. But first, Partygate, Police and Period Pains, it's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we haven't got any shark heads, but if you do, please call the historian Dan Snow. I think I'm going to need a bit of help with this one, Hannah. (laughs) Okay, so at the weekend, a shark washed up on a beach in Hampshire Mm -hmm. and photographs started circulating of it on social media and some scientists and, you know, sea scientist types, there must be a word for that. Marine Marine biologists. biologists. Okay, so they started saying, that's really rare. That's actually a really rare shark. Can somebody go and grab it for us Mm -hmm. and we can, you know, have a look at it because it's rare that you get to look at those sharks, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, the historian Dan Snow was nearby and decided to go and get involved. But by the time he got there, somebody had already taken the head and the fin 
obviously as some sort of trophy. Oh. Uh, perhaps to comically put in the bed of someone that they didn't like <laughs> or I don't know. So he put out an appeal on social media that says, you can have the head back if you want it. It's yours, but could we have it in the meanwhile? The head and the fin. So science can have a little look at it and learn something and then you can have it back. It's a bit mean, isn't it? When science would benefit from it. Come on, if you've yeah. got it, do the right thing, listener of Standard Issue Podcast with a shark. Yeah, I mean, how many of our listeners do you think have cut the head off a shark? I don't know. I hope not that many, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big week for former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. And if you're listening to this on Wednesday morning, you'll be able to tune into his appearance this afternoon in front of a seven-member cross-party privileges committee to face accusations he lied to Parliament over Partygate. Here, on Monday, as we record, we don't even know what defence he plans to make, as it's not going to be released until after we record. But if I were to hazard a guess, I reckon it will be Waffle Waffle, Bumble Bumble, something in Latin, Churchill reference, Waffle Waffle, Give My Dad a Knighthood, Inappropriate Joke, Don Made Me Do It, Long awkward silence, the end. Alas, he'll say alas at some point. (laughs) The BJ fan club's defence is already in the public domain with superfan Nadine Dorries claiming that the majority Tory committee is biased. That told him, Nadine, (laughs) yeah. His allies are also, according to The Guardian, testing support amongst colleagues to gauge how many could vote down any sanction recommended by the committee. The toughest of which could be a suspension from Parliament for 10 days, which would trigger a recall petition and a potential by-election in Uxbridge and South Ryslip. Another potential outcome, according to the worst Chancellor in living memory, Kwasi Kwarteng, Mm. is that Johnson is cleared, fated and then carried on the shoulder of loyal plebs to make a triumphant return to frontline politics. Yeah, all right, Quasi. Maybe just stop saying stuff. <laughs> you sound like you're scripted by a bot farm. <laughs> Lord Cruddus, a former, what a name, a former Tory party treasurer that Johnson gave a peerage to in 2020, has urged the Privileged Committee not to rely on a report into the illegal parties compiled by the senior civil servant Sue Gray, given she later took up a job offer from Labour. Are those two things connected, do you think? The peerage and the defence of Johnson? Who's to say, Jen? Who's to say? And Lord Greenhouse, the vice president of the Conservative Democratic Organisation, called the committee's inquiry a witch hunt, which was evidence of, quote, a McCarthyite approach to justice. Just FYI, McCarthyism, like Nazism, is now used in place of something I don't like. Read some history, dudes. The former PM doesn't have the confidence of many Tories, however, with Dominic Grieve responding to claims that Harriet Harman, who is chairing the committee, was biased. He said, I'm afraid that just shows the elements of the Conservative Party are still delusional (laughs) about Mr Johnson. Johnson has reportedly been practising for the televised hearing with his legal team, although I genuinely struggle to imagine he'd do that, given the I'll do it on the night attitude that has pervaded Johnson's entire career. Waffle, waffle, bumble, bumble, something in Latin. More news as it happens. Yeah, I mean, it's the hope that kills you, isn't it? Because you do really Uh. hope that, like... Because this man is basically just, like, as you say, his whole career is, like, somehow just on the seat of his pants, just 
skidded yeah. through it, leaving skid yeah. marks behind him wherever yeah. he goes. And you just hope that for once he won't get away with something. And also then, you know, that has repercussions for Rishi Sunak, doesn't it? Because if Johnson lied about mm. it, what does that mean for the current Prime Minister who also faced a fine yeah. for his behaviour and denied any knowledge of it? So, yeah, it could be quite serious even if it goes badly for johnson are we going to go into like a fucking donald trump style mm. thing whereby his allies just keep claiming that he was set up and this is all a fit up and all of that and then we end up with this issue just being resolved but then never being resolved because people just refuse to accept the outcome i have to say that being being suspended for 10 days does not feel like a very serious repercussion for lying other than it it triggers a recall i feel that you should be i don't know i feel that it should be punishable by law if you deliberately mislead parliament but it's just me well let's see what happens come on harriet harman yeah quite. i would say do the right thing but she generally as a rule does do the right thing yeah i've got confidence got more faith in her than i do in an awful lot of them (laughs) yeah anyway speaking of faith let's talk about the metropolitan police Oh, God. Again. A mere 24 years since the McPherson report was published after an inquiry into the Met's handling of the murder of Stephen Lawrence, the force looks likely to be facing another day of reckoning. Back in 1999, Sir William McPherson's report highlighted what would have been obvious to many, but nonetheless sent shockwaves through society after he labelled the Met as institutionally racist. On Tuesday, which was yesterday for those listening on Wednesday, but it's tomorrow as we record. The government will publish a review of the force's culture and standards by Baroness Casey, who was appointed after the rape and murder of Sarah Everard by serving officer Wayne Cousins. Reports over the weekend suggest that it will not make for an easy read for the Met's top brass. And make no mistake, it's been a torrid couple of years for the Met, which has seen the conviction of not just Cousins, but PCs Jonathan Cobbin and Joel Borders, who joked in a WhatsApp group about beating and sexually assaulting women, raping a colleague and tasering a child, as well as other racist, homophobic and ableist lols. PCs, yeah, funny, funny guys. So funny. Not so funny now, is it, being a policeman in prison? Anyway, (laughs) PCs Dennis Jaffa and Jamie Lewis were jailed after they left their post to take photos of the mutilated bodies of murdered sisters Nicole Smallman and Bieber Henry. David Carrick will face at least 30 years in prison after being found guilty of violent and sexual offences against 12 women. These are just the high-profile cases, so reports that Casey is to lift the lid on the Met's tolerance of wrongdoing, as well as its instinct to protect officers before the public, will not come as a huge surprise. Culture, recruitment, training and leadership are all expected to face criticism, and misogyny, racism and homophobia to be unveiled as part of the report. So what happens next? Outgoing chair of the National Police Chiefs Council, Martin Hewitt, told The Guardian it would take years to regain lost trust and the Met did not have a, and I quote, God-given right to exist in its current form and size if it could not overcome that loss. Thank God, Hannah, thank God that we have a Home Secretary who is up to the gargantuan task of reform that lies ahead. Oh, God's sake. Yeah. Yeah, not a lot to no, say. Nothing. <laughs> it's not often I'm at a loss for words, but here we are. Yay, the police, eh? Mm. 
Dear God. Jen, do you fancy a little trip to South Korea to see what's what there? Sure. <laughs> Great. Because I think I can rustle up some good news from there, at least. Good. Last week, South Korean politicians backtracked on a plan to up the maximum number of hours employers could require staff to work each week. The country already has longer working hours than many. Although in 2018, legislation was introduced to limit the working week to 52 hours. By way of comparison, in the UK, the average full-time worker does 36.4 hours per week, which itself is more than many European countries. Anyway... Back to South Korea, where the plan to up that limit has been put aside after protests, largely by younger people. And just in case you feel inclined to say, young people, eh, don't know the meaning of hard work, do they? Let's have a look at the maximum hours they could have been asked to work. Checks notes, 69 hours. I mean, fuck that shit. What? (laughs) (laughs) For reference, that's roughly... 8am to 10pm if you were spreading it over five days. When are you supposed to find the time to do other stuff? Like, you know, play sport, study, see your children. Or, and bear with me on this, (laughs) fuck. Because that last one is one of the reasons that the plan has been shelved, as perpetually being at work was seen as a hindrance to South Korea's other plans to increase its ever-dwindling birth rate. No shit. Can you imagine? It's like the last thing you'd want to do. <laughs> Just be like, get off yeah. me. Yeah, literally. <laughs> okay. Too tired to fuck, and then you'd never see them afterwards. <laughs> Just never see your children again. Get off me, You're I want some toast. I've got four hours. minutes before I need to go to bed, I'm going to eat some toast. <laughs> exactly that. Yeah, I mean, well done those people for protesting. Wowzers. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where medical misogyny is the gift that just keeps giving. And yes, I know it's a horn we are tooting with frequency. We'll stop tooting when it stops blowing. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, all right. Me either. <laughs> I just thought I'd give it a well. Speaking <laughs> of horns... Thanks to the always excellent Invisible Women newsletter from Caroline Criado Perez, I was introduced this week to a new word, and I'm going to struggle to pronounce it, dysmenorrhea? Dysmenorrhea. Sounds a bit too much like diarrhea for my liking. It does, but I'm thinking that given the spelling of it, it must sound a bit like diarrhea. It's spelt very similarly. Anyway, that's period pains, which impact on up to a whopping 90% of women, so almost half the population, and can be comparable in intensity to the pain associated with a heart attack. If you're one of the unlucky people who suffer, I literally feel your pain, and no, it sucks. Interesting that as someone who has suffered from period pain since the age of 14, sometimes to the extent that I have actually vomited... I was today years old when I learned the medical term for it. Thank you, CCP. Yeah. It sucks even harder that no one really knows why they happen or how to stop them. Here's the medical misogyny I promised you. Or don't they? Yeah. Mm. Well, it turns out actually they do at least know what might stop them. And here's an ironic finding for you. It's only bloody Viagra. Yeah. Is there anything it can't do? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) You'd think they would know the amount of money they've spent fucking researching it. You might remember that they have spent 
a hell of a lot of money on research into erectile dysfunction. In fact, Lynn Enright found while researching her 2019 book, Vagina, a re-education, that there is five times more research on erectile dysfunction affecting 19% of men than into PMS, which affects 90% of women. Wow. Thanks, lads. I'm not done yet because we knew all of this already. We've also known that, again, I'm going to struggle with this, sildenafil citrate the medical name for Mm -hmm. viagra could relieve period pain we've known this since 2013 when a dr richard legro first undertook a study on the subject though his findings were suggestive because he ran out of funding before he could confirm the findings dr legro has subsequently applied for funding but no one has given it One of the problems here is that we don't know what actually causes period pain. So it's kind of tricky to find a cure, as it were. But there is work being undertaken to find out more about it, largely by men, it seems. But the men in control of the purse strings are, Kel surprise, not that bothered about funding it. Yeah, they're all too busy playing with their new arrangements, aren't they? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Don't have time. So a little bit of good news is that Dr Frank too is hoping to include a small study on the effects of sildenafil citrate as part of a larger trial of different treatments. So, you know, maybe we will find out. Wow. I mean, yeah. I don't even know why I say wow because none of that is surprising. It's just, yeah. Viagra for everyone. (laughs) Wouldn't it be funny if... No, it wouldn't be funny. It'd just be good, wouldn't it, if they'd spent all that money on on researching Viagra and it turned out it was actually good for almost half the population as well as the 19% who have sad cock or whatever Leah Hazard called it in in Chops last week. I think that figure's probably busier than 19%, isn't it? To be honest, I think (laughs) it's bigger than 19%. Yeah, underreported, I absolutely reckon. It's not me, it's definitely you. (laughs) I'm joined on the Zoom by Helen Wills, mum of teenagers, host of the excellent Teenage Kicks podcast, and a woman with a whole lot of other stuff up her sleeve. Helen, hello. Hi, thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. It's great to have you. We were just discussing how incredibly warm your sleeves are, in fact, because you're in an oody. I think Helen's lucky there's a screen between us, otherwise I'd be trying to get in it with her. (laughs) <laughs> so Helen, you talk about teenagers on the regular, not least because you've got to, but I don't think there is anything in the world that could convince me to be a teenager again. Being a teenager is tough, right? Oh my God. I, I mean, now I've got a 15 year old and an 18 year old and my 18 year old is a girl. So I look at her life and remember it naturally like my life. Mm. And yet I'm having flashbacks <laughs> to standing in the corridor asking for a piece of gum surreptitiously from a friend and wondering if I could stick my foot out and trip a teacher up and wonder what would happen. And I, I'm thinking, does she feel that way? But of course she feels that way plus a whole load of extra stuff Mm -hmm. because being a teenager then wasn't anything like being a teenager now despite the fact that the feelings are all the same yeah totally totally I think that there is the biggest gulf we've seen in a very long time between teenagers now and the parents of teenagers now because this generation of teens has grown up and is doing a huge amount of their growing up on the big brother that is social media yeah Yeah, um, I count myself lucky that I got into social media 
kind of at the beginning of Twitter, really, like 12, 13 years ago. Oh, the heyday before it became a cesspit. <laughs> when it was really fun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, um, and so when I do know, I understand a bit about being online, but so many parents my age, I'm 56, haven't really got an online presence, don't know what it's all about. And so when their kids arrive in that world... And let's face it, that world is their world now. There isn't really, there's no in real life Uh and online life. It's all one and the same thing now. I think parents find that really hard to get their heads around and it it is a cause of conflict. Yeah, and and kind of understandably so, because even if, you know, the the tips are, and I know you've talked about this on your podcast, get involved, join social media so you at least have an idea of what's going on. But you're never going to be able to immerse yourself in the same way that the kids are immersed in it. No. And even if you try, you'll rapidly get told where to get off by your kids. (laughs) So I I had Instagram and Twitter before my kids had any of those things. So I kind of for a while was in a honeymoon period of, look, I know what you're doing and I know more than you about it. And I had that sort of credibility, if you like. But now, you know, I can't get my head around Snapchat and I've, I've given up even trying. Uh-huh. TikTok, uh, uh, who has the time? No. And Be Real. I tried to get on Be Real because I thought, you know what, that's something that I could do. It sounds like Instagram used to be before it became all curated. I could do that. No, mother, you cannot follow me. (laughs) I am not following you. And oh, I did follow you, but your Be Real stinks. You look so stupid. They're so (laughs) So, brutal. They are brutal. All of this means that I I don't have children, but I can only imagine being a parent of a teenager is as tough as being a teenager. I mean, from what I can see, from the reading I've done, from the people I've talked to, from my mates and family, parenting is hard, full stop. But teens are definitely the age where your help is mostly just not wanted. Stop interfering. (laughs) And they start to pull away from you because they have to. It's inbuilt so that they can leave the nest at some time. Heartbreaking. I'm heartbroken for parents. But also, they do really need you still. So how do you balance all of that? It's, it's well... Um, <laughs> Big question, I'd like, Helen. <laughs> I'd like to say with a, with a strong gin, but that wouldn't be very <laughs> responsible of me. A lot of soul searching and a lot of forgiveness um, on both sides, actually. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness of them and forgiveness of myself, which is harder to do. I've just been doing um, a bit of research for a podcast that I'm recording this morning with um, someone who said something that spoke to me so deeply about how she was trying not to repeat the the mother-daughter conflict that she had experienced with her own mum and was failing on a daily basis. And that's how it feels every single day. Trying to communicate unconditional love to somebody, and, and it comes out wrong, somebody who's pitted against you not deliberately and not through their will but just through the natural circumstance of their age and our age and our roles and you're right someone actually said to me a couple of days ago I think kids when they're teenagers are so horrible by genetic default because it's what makes us allow them to leave Mm -hmm. home want them to leave home yeah Yeah, (laughs) and I think it's true it's absolutely unavoidable and so the only way to get through it is with a deep dose of compassion for yourself and to try and understand that none of it's personal. 
I read somewhere, and obviously there's not as much advice out there for parents of teens as there are for other stages of kids' lives at all. And I think it's because maybe because it's just so baffling. But I read that, like, this is when you have to not try to be their friend. This is actually when you have to just be the parent. Have you found that sort of true? Yeah, it's kind of really hard because Mm. in some ways they do want to be your friend. And when they're in that frame of mind, it's really easy to get sucked into it. Oh my God, yeah, they're giving me some attention. They (laughs) they like me. Let's just be happy. (laughs) And And then obviously they do or say something that you know probably isn't right. And then it's finding the way to say, you might want to have a rethink on that mm-hmm. without jumping in and saying, right, you shouldn't be doing that. You should be doing this. If you do that, this terrible thing's going to happen to you, which is what we've done since they were born. We've been in control of their lives yep. and we've kept them safe and we've taught them not to run out into the road. It's innate now. We've been doing it for 10 years. So we're going to continue to do it for the next 60 years. (laughs) And it's breaking that habit and trusting that they've got to make mistakes on their own and learn from their own mistakes the way we did. And trusting that the that first 10 years that you gave them is enough that they'll have the tools in their box to cope. It's really hard. Yeah, that's so hard. Relinquishing control to someone who, with all love and respect, is still basically an idiot. And I say that because (laughs) I was an idiot as a teenager. We all were. We all do things that test boundaries, that push ourselves, that end up blowing up in our faces. But that is exactly how we learn. But like, I think back to my mum picking me up off the floor for various different reasons And like my heart breaks for her because that must be so hard. Oh, I'm just waiting for the time when my kids get to that point. I'm hoping I'm still alive by then and (laughs) I can reap the rewards when they realise and they say, oh, thanks, mum, because I was a bit of a dick at times. (laughs) (laughs) I remember talking to someone who was really going through it and I was like, they they will reach a point that I promise you, because I suffered really badly from depression, which was, you know, as hard for my mum as it was for me, I imagine. But I said, you will reach a point where they will be saying sorry and thank you. And she was like, it doesn't feel like that now. And I'm like, I promise you, it will happen. Otherwise, like, yeah. cut them out of the will. They're not worth it if they're not going to apologize. <laughs> <laughs> I know, imagine. But as a mother, you can't even do that. There's there's not many people that I think could ever get to that point where they feel so strongly that they would punish their children in any way. That's that's the catch-22. You take all their punishment and you can't give any of it back. You cover a lot of ground on the podcast. There's so much to cover, but you know, from dating and sexing to body image, bereavement, cyberbullying, sexism, domestic violence, mental health, which is obviously a huge one. And all of the previous things I've mentioned tie into that. There is such, oh, such a fine line between something being fairly normal in inverted commas, teenage behavior or moodiness or hormones or just the huge task of going through what is normal but enormous change and that tipping over into being mm. something more serious that it that it needs something doing about it mm. how do you navigate that how do you tiptoe that line mm. oh god it's so hard um i'm gonna touch some i haven't got any wood i've got a bit of ikea kind of formica stuff. Touch Ikea, um, that's the modern way, that's the phrase. <laughs> I haven't yet had to deal with anything that's felt too catastrophic. Mm. 
But I have dealt with things or have watched things unfold that have felt really painful and difficult. As a teenager, I've had, we've had, you know, my daughter's got um, a, quite a, an unpleasant, di- well, unpleasant, it's a life-altering diagnosis. She's a type 1 diabetic. Um, oh, and that was horrific to navigate. But she was nine. In terms of the normal teenage stuff that can go too far, I've watched friends deal with it. And it, oh, my God, I've, my heart breaks for them because I know how stressful it can be being a parent of a teenager anyway. Because they all have mental health issues. They all have their issues. Um, and they all act out, but those that take it a bit further, I've seen friends with their kids are involved with the police. I've heard stories of children. Well, in fact, one of my podcast episodes is um, a, an amazing woman who was hospitalized with depression during her A-levels. In the run-up to her A-levels, she had day release from hospital to take her exams. Wow. And what I've learned from those conversations is that um, as you were saying, they do all get through it. And the only thing that you can do is show up when they want you to be there and try and keep communication channels open. And OK, so there will be days, sometimes weeks at a time when they sh- they're shutting you down and they will not communicate. And it's very brittle. But they, there will be chinks every now and then where you can just get a little bit of something in to let them know that you're still there you'll still have their back when they need you to and they can come back to you whenever they need to. And it it really is just helping them know that they can still trust you. Yeah. When a huge issue is facing your teenage child, and it's interesting because you said you've not really gone through that, but with your daughter's diagnosis, I wonder if that made her more responsible from an early age because she knows she has to look after herself. But also for you, that relinquishing control of that must have been very hard because it's literally life or death. And actually lots of situations where parents have to relinquish control of that person to that person because they're a teenager now end up being a bit life or death. So how do you be objective? Because that's (laughs) going to help. How do you get into that headspace? I keep thinking that word again, gin. (laughs) I'm going to quit myself really badly. I think actually you're right. That diagnosis is the reason that I'm less of a control freak. And it's why I'm able now to talk to people about the need to gradually let go of control. I call it death by a thousand cuts. It's the process of letting them become an adult. Type 1 diabetes is one of those things that you think you can control until you realize, and it took me two years to realize that I was beating my head against a brick wall every single day. And so was she. I eventually had to take a step back and just do the next best thing in every given moment. And that is a good enough motto for parenting teens. I used to be such a catastrophizer. The day she was diagnosed, I was worried that she might die in her sleep when she was at university. Bearing in mind she was nine and not a child prodigy, I was thinking (laughs) so far ahead and it wasn't worth it. And eventually I realized that the best thing I could do was cross the next difficult bridge Mm. and forget about all the other bridges. And that is how, you know, I don't worry... People are, are panicking about their kids dying of alcohol poisoning or um, 
uh, drink spiking and injections in nightclubs when they go out at the age of 18. I don't even think about it. I would have if it hadn't been for this diagnosis, but that forced me to get over my control issues. And as parents, I'm not judging, as parents, we've all got control issues because of that, this precious tiny thing that would die if you left it for more than five hours. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's where it comes from. It's it's in our psyche now. So I don't blame anyone for feeling that way, but it is absolutely crucial. And the only way to do it is to think about just the next challenge and not think about the one after that, because the one after that probably won't happen. Yeah, I mean, that is great advice for life for anyone. That's just generally great advice. You know, control what's in front of you instead of catastrophizing about the future. Easy to say, harder to do, for sure. (laughs) You don't just talk to adults on the podcast. You don't just talk to experts. You also have teens on the podcast. And the the whole point of Teenage Kicks is it's there for the parents and the teenagers. I wondered who you have learned most from, the experts, the adults or the teenagers? Oh, the kids, without a doubt. Absolutely. I had um, a young lady, I think she was 15 when she interviewed with me on the podcast, the title of that podcast is is something like Things I Wish Adults Knew About Teenagers. And she was so sane and smart and sassy, but all the st- I couldn't argue with anything that she said. Mm-hmm. Like, actually, you can trust us. We are going to make mistakes, but you can trust us to make the mistakes and then come to you if we need to. Um, we do still need you. We do still care what you, th- what you think of us. We just don't want you meddling in our stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, they, and I say it in general on Instagram every day, all the teenagers I meet. I used to be really scared of teenagers. I imagine myself as I might put my hood up on my hoodie as I describe this. And like <laughs> one of those little old ladies in a, in a hairnet scared to go around the corner because there were six lads on bikes standing there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I walk past those boys now and they're all just talking about their own vulnerabilities. They're not there to steal my handbag and trip me up. <laughs> it's a stereotype. And that has been the biggest revelation. I was terrified of having teenagers when my daughter was seven and was starting to get, well, starting. She had an attitude all her life. Let's, <laughs> let's be fair. <laughs> but I was terrified that it would escalate and become something awful and she'd be climbing out of her window to go clubbing with boys when she was 14 and nothing could have been further from the truth they're just people with the same hang-ups as everyone else and if we can see that we can see beyond the bluster and the facade they they think they've got to put out there then you know 99.9 percent of them are really reasonable people and not only that they're funny they're intelligent they've got really good attitudes to the world the world's in safe hands i think with uh, with the next generation of adults coming through oh i'm drinking up the hope like a cool glass of water delightful i like it i like it because <laughs> i do think we hear a lot of focus on the worst bits of parenting teens, the challenges of parenting teens. So actually, I would like you to tell me what are the best bits about having teenagers in the house? Oh, the the laughs. They've got a wicked sense of humour. They know stuff. They can teach us stuff. I've really learned things and changed my outlook on the world. as a, And I've learned things about myself through having teenagers. But 
the conversations we have around the dinner table in the evening are just hilarious. They, they're so witty and yet really savvy. I've got two politics students. Wow. So you can imagine. Occasionally we get a bit of soapbox, but usually it's just it's just really funny. And, and, and all four of us are talking about what's the next ludicrous thing our government could do. Oh, I mean, the options are endless. That is a lot of dinner table conversation. <laughs> So I'd like to stay positive, Possum. How do you look after your own mental health when there are those challenging bits that inevitably will come up with parenting a teen? One word, and it's therapy. Oh, okay. That's, I thought you were going to say gin again. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Talk a lot about gin, but don't actually go there too often because it just makes me feel worse in yeah. the long run. Mm-hmm. But no, connection is probably the best word. Um I, I do. I have. I have a therapist. I'm actually studying to be a counsellor as a result of my experiences with therapy, um, because it's been so life changing, and it's what helps me to put those boundaries in place that I was talking about earlier. When I need to remind myself that this is about them, not me. Mm-hmm. That their attitude or their behaviour towards me is telling me more about the place they're in their headspace than it is about anything that I've done as long as I'm acquitting myself well and doing my best doing the best I can with the tools I've got right now and knowing that I can't get it right all of the time then yeah boundaries and just trying to connect with people who understand that connect with people who've got the same things going on as me perfect and I think again Quite often they're depicted as alien creatures, but you know, they're just people. So the relationships you have with your teenagers are are the same as relationships that you have with anyone that are important to you. Listening, actually listening is probably the key to stuff going well and that communication, that connection that you just said. So yeah. Yeah, listening and not taking it personally and, you know, finding people to talk to who've got the same. I've got a Facebook group. It's private. And so our teenagers can't see. I can't say anything on Instagram anymore because my kids will see it. <laughs> but I can say anything I like in this group and people will come in and say, oh my God, we've hit the smelly bedroom stage. How the hell do you deal with it? And it's the teenage equivalent of we've had head lice six times this year and and it's doing my head in. I can't cope anymore. What are you all doing about that? Mm-hmm. that? That dries up and disappears, as you said, once they're teenagers. So yeah, that's a saving grace for me in there. Have somewhere that you can vent a little bit. That sounds good. So Teenage Kicks is currently between seasons, but there are loads of episodes for listeners to sink their ears into wherever you get your podcasts. And you are working on the next season now, aren't you, Helen? When is it out? I'm going to launch this one at the beginning of April. Okay, so not long, actually. That's only a couple of weeks. Yeah, no, it's been offline since just before Christmas, as I've been kind of regrouping and finding new people tell me about their trauma. I know that you also have various other related projects. So what else are you up to and where can people find you? Oh, yeah, thank you. So the the Facebook group that I mentioned is also called Teenage Kicks. It's a private group. No one will see what you say in there. And everyone in there is a safe pair of hands. They will get it. And I have a website, which is still called Actually Mummy. There's that attitude of your firstborn, isn't it? Actually Mummy. Actually Mummy. <laughs> I think you'll find. <laughs> that is exactly where it came from. And I launched that as a mummy blog when she was six that is still going, but it's morphed into more of a midlife parent, teenage mental health support place, which supports my counselling and coaching. But you'll find it at Actually Mummy. 
And um, on Instagram, I am Helen Wills on Instagram. Helen, thank you so much for chatting with me. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, thanks so much. It's always great. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by Evie King, author of a genuinely excellent new book, Ashes to Admin, which is about her work organising council funerals. Thank you for joining us. No problem at all. Thanks for inviting me on. We were just talking off mic that you and I share a friend in common, and I don't know what it says about her that she has two single childless (laughs) friends who are obsessed with death. She's the Pied Piper of weird women. <laughs> yeah. Now, I want to start by saying something that probably loads of people say to you, or perhaps they don't, is that I actually genuinely envy your job. It seems wonderful. Could we maybe start with you telling people what it is that your job actually involves? I mean, a handful of people have said to me they love my job. Just, I think, because it's interesting human interest mm-hmm. basically my, my job is to arrange a funeral for someone if they don't have any family left around to do it or if uh, there is a family but they don't have the means so either way I'm getting involved with people whether it's helping the family to get their loved one laid to rest or by helping someone who, who hasn't got anyone there for whatever reason it's a variety of reasons you know they could have just outlived everyone right through so they didn't want to know anyone or they'd walked away from their family their family had walked away from them there's so many things that can end Mm. you up there and it's it's not a personality trait it's completely circumstantial (laughs) i get to basically enter the home of that person if if there's no one to do it and look for clues about them to try and link them in with someone find family if there is distant family find friends speak to neighbors and I also just nose around their music and books to get some personality details for their eulogy. And we just try and make sure that we either get people along, even if it's, you know, acquaintances, carers, club members, fellow hobbyists, and make sure their eulogy's reflective of the life they lived. And also I have to take their bin out one last time because it's a public health duty too. <laughs> and we can't have rubbish building up, food rotting on sideboards. You do actually have to do some quite grim stuff, you know, when people haven't been found for ages. So you need yeah. a strong stomach, right? It's an acquired stomach because <laughs> I didn't have it to start with. <laughs> I, I remember my first day, I, I couldn't eat my lunch because I was just so stricken with the smell of death in my nostrils. And I thought it was all over me, but it's just in your nostrils and in your mouth. So you think everything smells of it, your clothes smell of it. But after a while, you're wolfing down your sandwich without thinking about it. But yes, there will be sometimes very obvious evidence of where the person has, has died or been laying for a bit and with the food waste there will sometimes be flies and maggots and things like that but really once you've seen it a few times you just realize it's all organic life what of it that you know you wouldn't want it around your house all the time you wouldn't luxuriate in it but you get very matter of fact about it you get very accepting and philosophical about it um, so you don't get salacious I I had to um, request a change in a title of a piece recently about my book because it was Put in quotes, as I had said it, I have to go into people's homes. I've seen some awful things. Mm-hmm. And it made it sound like I was sort yeah. of being selectious. And I hadn't even said it. And I would never say that. I just roll up my sleeves, put my gloves on and, and get on with it. It's just it's just life, isn't it? And death, it's the same thing. Yeah. I think this is why our friend in common told me to read your book. Because, yeah, <laughs> very much agreed. Because, I mean, to me, I look at it and I think, you know, I'm a journalist, so it's it's an investigation into someone's life. What better? In, in fact, yes. 
I, on two occasions, including quite recently, I've I've ended up being the celebrant at a funeral because oh, there was nobody else available. And when you've waited for ages for a funeral, people just get to the point where you're like, you know, you've got to get it done. There's a grieving yeah, process. To... There is a time level, I think, you reach yeah. a saturation point. Yeah. To say that I enjoyed doing them would be an odd thing to say, but I could immediately see the value and immediately I was flooded with this. I should just do this. Mm. This is what I'm going to yeah. do when I retire because I'm never going to be able to afford to retire. It would be a wonderful thing to do it wouldn't be working in a way would it because you know if you're enjoying it i know that's the cliche if you like your job but it it is not just liking your job but what you were saying about feeling that value of it it's it's more than enjoying it it's i don't mind doing things on my day off because it's part of the experience of getting that situation resolved Mm. and helping that person and sorting things out i can't just say oh i'm finishing at five if i've just had a call at four I need to resolve certain matters before things can happen. So I'm not going to say, well, I don't come back until Monday. So, you know, and it's not just because I I want to get that task done. It's because I want to get that person sorted out. It doesn't feel like work. It feels like doing someone a favor and, uh, oh, no, I'll do that. No, no, I'll help out. (laughs) And it does have that feeling of of satisfaction, as you say, of of goodness. When you're doing that as a job, it helps a great deal because it, it means you never really feel stressed by work you just feel pushed to do the thing and mm. to do it well yeah to enjoy it as you say enjoy sounds weird but it is enjoyable to do something that fulfills and then has a, also has a set end and and conclusion because a lot of the other work i do at the council yeah. doesn't it's endless like people just keep boning in about the same dog that barks you know oh, we're yeah. never really gonna be able to talk to that dog <laughs> we can talk to the owner and tell them about training and things like that but the problem keeps coming back when the dog's excited and same with you know people's bins and those things just keep going and going and there's this sort of peace in this part of the job where there's a process and it happens and it finishes and you move on. I'm guessing everybody doesn't react like I do to what you do for a living. I'm guessing a lot of people would consider it somewhere between that's not for me and borderline horrific. Why do you think mm. so many of us aren't very good with death? I guess none of us can imagine the world without us in it because we've only ever known the world with mm. us in it. My friend did an Edinburgh show about death once and said, you know, I can't die. I'm the main character. And I think there's yeah. main character syndrome in it. And yeah thinking about ourselves completely gone and obliterated is a big deal and I can also appreciate that it's not just the act of dying and disappearing it's the pain and the decrepitude potentially and you know the uh, illness that might take you and the, mm. and the pain you might feel at the end so it's not a part of life that we particularly want to dwell upon I expect it also it's a necessary thing to keep in the back of your mind in order to live a good life I think it's not something you should completely shun because you can end up walking through life in a sort of sleepwalking mm. manner because you think every day is going to be the same particularly if you're on a track where you're like me getting up having a coffee and everything's neat in your room and you've hoovered it and it's all in control and then you go to the office and it's all in control death can't get me because look i'm i'm having a sandwich from boots <laughs> and then you could just live your life like that on this track yeah. of, of i'm safe i'm safe and then you'll get a real shock when something comes in like a death of a close person to you or your own you know demise is is signposted by a, a diagnosis it's not something we should all dwell on all the time but and i can see why people don't but i think it's valuable to have it in the back of your mind just the back of your mind <laughs> when i was growing up and for years and years people used to say to me your dad's ever so good with death because when people died my dad would just get involved and do whatever and then when he died 
we were kind of joking in our family that someone else was going to have to step up and become the person that was good with death. <laughs> and it, it sort of became me, not because I wanted to, but just because I realised it's actually quite simple. You just have to turn up. That's literally yes. all you have to do. There is no right thing to say. There is no right thing to do. You just have to turn up. There is no wise words. <laughs> um, a friend of mine recently was saying their relative was very ill and it sounded like bad. So I didn't say, I hope they get well soon, because that isn't helpful and they might mm. not. I just said that we're sending love and I know you're really strong. So, you know, hang in there. But if you need anything, let me know. Yeah. And things like that, where if you're just around. Yeah. And if you're very um, upfront about it as well, because I think there's... Um, this thing where we almost don't want to make a faux pas or, or, or make someone cry. You wouldn't be making them cry, though. You just they're, they're probably wanting to cry anyway. You don't want to be the person that brings it on and then has to deal with it. So people don't speak to you and they don't even mention the person's name anymore. And particularly after the funeral, I think, the, the build-up to the funeral and the funeral itself is probably the best time in air quotes because everyone's around and everyone's doing and mm. there's planning. And the centre of things is the person who's gone. But once that funeral's finished, it's like, right, we will never speak of this again. Yeah. And, and that's hard because it's uh, it's usually in that first year that I think, you know, little anniversary moments and just everyday moments yeah. that you really still need to be talking about it. You don't have to say anything like Yoda sort of wise, even just saying, oh, it's shit, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. yeah, it is. It's really shit. <laughs> you know, it's enough sometimes. And just letting someone talk or cry or listen and just say, you don't have to say anything. Just sit here and cry. I'll sit here with you. As someone who, this is me, as someone who's done loads of stuff with dying matters and been around loads of death in the last sort of, I'd say, four or five years, yeah. I now know that I have to write that list to make my brother, who will inevitably be the person who has to deal with it, to make his life easier. <laughs> and yet... I get to feel some sort of sanctimony, like, oh, I know I have to do it. Have I actually done any of it? No, I haven't. Uh, not yet. So I will tell you that I was a bit pissed on a train coming home from London last night. And it was really <laughs> bleak on the train. And it was really rainy outside. And I thought, I'm going to pick a funeral song. That's what I'm going to do on this train journey. I'm actually going to pick a funeral song, go home and write in a book. So he's got one less thing to think about. Oh, there you go. Chip away at it. That's it. You don't have to do it all in one go. Sorry? Just give a notebook keep a notebook on the go yeah. so you chip away at it yeah so it's a bit heavy to do in one big hit and it's quite a big responsibility thinking of a song I don't even know what my favorite song is exactly when people ask you what your favorite mm. song is suddenly I was like I don't even know what I like I, I should know this yeah, <laughs> I should know <laughs> I am my own specialist yeah. subject yeah and yet I still can't <laughs> I still can't do this. <laughs> you mentioned the list. It would make my life a lot easier as the admin person trying to make sure I've closed every account or mm. informed every you know, utility or phone. But also, yeah, for people who know they've got people who probably will be doing it, it would help them a great deal. You don't need to write down all your secret passwords and your new account numbers even because all the people will need to know when you phone up is, you know, the name, the address, the postcode the account number which you'll have on a bit of paper probably enough but even then they can link you in with your postcode your date of birth so it's just a list of edf o2 you know yeah southern water sky and then they can all be phoned in a nice little orderly fashion yeah. and it's just so much easier because it's such a chaotic time isn't it yeah you know, absolutely. emotionally one thing that you mentioned in your book that i wanted to talk to you about was was the concept of dying alone which you talk about how it's used as sort of an insult to people. Ah, you're yes. going to die alone. 
when in fact yeah. people die alone for all sorts of reasons and most of them aren't that they weren't loved as someone who will likely die alone you know I live alone so the chances are pretty high that I will <laughs> I don't think it would speak to about me as a person that knowledge that that's what no. happened to me and also I think it makes it worse for people who have someone who has died alone that it carries this stigma I think I'd rather die alone you know you know when you're really ill with flu or something you yeah. don't even want anyone opening the door and talking to you yeah <laughs> it's like that times a million i probably think and even if there's people in the room with you uh, it's it's sort of unknown how much you're aware of anyway isn't it mm. i think your hearing is the last thing to go so you might hear people sort of speaking to you but even then again think about waking up at three in the morning and not knowing what time it is and you know being half in a dream and half. i feel like you're not really going to know and this idea that you're sort of in this lonely position if you're on your own doing it or a sad position mm. it's just a factual thing you're just in a place by yourself at the time or like you say it's not a value judgment there was a, a guy I dealt with whose wife had died before him so he wasn't like unloved it was just the person that would have done his funeral had died already and yeah. if, if he'd have died first she'd have probably had nobody you didn't live a life or you, you you've you failed or something you could be 99 or your friends have gone exactly exactly um, and- that two of the funerals that i went to this year one was my uncle who was in his mid-80s and there was maybe 20 people there and one was a friend of mine who was 49 and there was standing room only if you've got a lot of people at your funeral you probably are young yeah that's not great I think the less people, the better, because it means you've beaten them all. In a way, you're the supremo winner, the last man standing-ish, but you know, laying down, I guess. But, you know, you die alone even if people are watching. You come in alone, you die alone. It's all something you're internalising and doing. And it's the life in the middle, really, that matters. And when I say matters, it's not winning the Nobel Prize. It's just enjoying it. If all you like doing is going and fishing, every Sunday and you did that every Sunday then you lived your life and that's good and most of the time when we're looking into people's lives they did what they wanted and they were clearly content in that Mm. (laughs) now talking of hard and painful Tory government (laughs) obviously things are really bleak at the moment are you seeing more demand you must be I am we're a quiet little council we usually have about 12 to 14 a year so one a month, maybe two, if it's a busy period, which is good. It gives me a lot of scope to pay individual attention to people, whereas you can compare that to somewhere like a city like Birmingham where they'll easily spend a million a year on these kind of funerals. Or when I was speaking to someone the other day from Los Angeles where they do 2,000 a year. Wow. So, yeah, quite a lot different <laughs> depending on where you work. Even I have had, well, let's say this year so far we've had seven referrals and we're just in in March so we've already got more than half our annual referrals in the first month two and a half months of the year and um, I went to a triple death reg because um, I had three people to do it once so I had booked out the, the hour with the registrar and she was saying because they get the sharper end than I do I um, don't have hospitals in my district mm. So it's where you die, not where you lived. So if you die in a hospital, it'd be the ones either side of my district have hospitals. I'm all rural, no big hospital, no sort of big facility. So the registrar sees a lot more. She sees everyone, the whole picture. And she was saying she sits at her desk some days nowadays and just cries at the end of the day because so many under 40s are being registered and the story is the same 
couldn't get an ambulance, couldn't get a doctor's appointment. She was saying, I just want to scream at people and tell them what's happening. And then actually that weekend in the Observer, I didn't see it anywhere else, but it was in the Observer. There was something about the coroner's court report on the excess deaths. And I think the sample they took of 56, 24 of the deaths were completely avoidable. And that's absolutely criminal. It's just criminal. My friend who died here, there was also almost no choice in what undertaker you went to because everyone was full. My um, funeral director contracted, funeral director, their storage was full at one point. So when I had yet another referral, they were like, we'll have to work it out, but we will help, obviously, because we're the contracted director, but they were at capacity. Interestingly, at the same time, my boss said that she couldn't get her um, sideboard, her kitchen sideboard, because the stonemason was so busy with gravestones wow. and the, the granite and the, you know, the granite was being used for gravestones. So it's it's frightening really the amount of people who are dying needlessly um mm. is absolutely frightening and i'm not getting the sharp sharp end of it seven is manageable there has been a point where it's been very tiring and I, my eye bags had high bags and <laughs> because you want to do right by people and when you've got three people at the same time it's still manageable ish but i do three days a week so yeah. <laughs> it means you end up doing evenings and weekends which i don't begrudge i'm not saying that to go I'm, I'm a hero it's just it will bleed in because you, you you can only get a registrar appointment on certain days and you can only get certain things done at certain times and you want to make sure it's done so, so that the person is definitely sorted and mm. you want to make sure you've searched every angle as well because there was one lady's house that was absolute chaos and I was told she had a will. We could not find it. And there were four of us. It was usually only two, me and a colleague. But there was also two from adult social care because her son was in a care home having got dementia. I have to follow wishes. And obviously, it's not just personally, but it's in the guidance. There's good practice guidance about this. It says, you know, you must follow the deceased wishes where possible within local limits. Mm. So it's not I want to be at the top of, you know, Mount you know, Kilimanjaro. That's not local conditions. But we will follow your instructions to the point we can. And one person I asked um, one of their re- relatives, what would they prefer? And uh, they went, well, he always just said, just never let them burn me. And I thought, well, <laughs> I, that would be ringing in my ears until the day I died if I cremated. So, yeah. yeah, it's yeah, absolutely that, that even though that person's gone and they wouldn't know about it. Those words, they're yeah. so visceral, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. That fear. <laughs> I have one more question for you. I know for a fact that not everyone around the country is going to get as good a service as you offer the people yeah. in your care. But if we've got anyone listening who has a relative who's died and they can't afford the funeral, what are they entitled to? Entitled such a weird word, but let's use it here. What are no, they I entitled exactly to? I know exactly what you mean. If they're on state-assisted benefits or any credits, and I think it has to be the whole family, actually. It's quite uh, prescriptive. Yeah. DWP can offer some help, Department of Work and Pensions. Um, it's a little bit of a, a maze that you have to get through, and it's not the greatest time of your life to be in a maze. But there um, is a charity called Quaker Social Action, who help people make those uh, applications. It's, I think, um, the cost of the funeral, the basic costs, plus £1,000, which sounds a lot, but actually it doesn't cover the whole funeral. It won't cover the cost of any kind of traditional funeral. Mm. It'll just help towards it. And they admit that themselves. I'm not being rude about them. (laughs) They, They say on the website, this will not cover the cost of a full funeral. But there are options such as direct cremation, which you can get for sort of around a thousand or just under. And that sounds incredibly 
cold and harsh like a what happens is as the person is taken away and cremated and their ashes are couriered back to you and before covid people were balking at that and saying good grief you know mail order cremation what have we become but actually during covid when funerals weren't exactly Mm. comforting (laughs) we were like you can't touch that person you have to stand over there it actually became quite normalized and actually people saw the benefits and i was saying to people who are asking for advice down the phone you know you could just do a direct and then because there's no point standing in the crematorium anymore it's it's an unpleasant thing Mm. then take those ashes and go to the park go to the beach you know and have your own thing because the best part of the funeral i find is the bit outside afterwards when people are chatting yeah. and exchanging the really good stories. Yeah. And then the other bit where they maybe go to the pub. So just you do that bit. Yeah. <laughs> it's free. You can do it yourself. <laughs> Ultimately, if DWP won't help and if even direct cremation is outside of you know your, your budget, although some also so I should say some funeral directors will extend credit or multiple payments and things like that. So that's worth looking into. And also checking your local rates by going on funeral comparison sites i know that sounds really weird having a funeral comparison site they are good because they do show massive differentials Mm. you might be able to say oh i could grub up you know that much if if other people chucked in 50 quid so if you can keep the control it's good because when you do come to the council and you always would have the right to come to the council because it's if there's nothing being done so the law is if there's no one willing or able so willing is in there. If if you don't like your parent and they were terrible to you, mm. but you're, you've got money, but you don't want to know, you can walk away. So it's it's not that you have to plead complete poverty and it's not that you have to becoming like people sometimes call them paupers. You know, I hate that term. Mm. It, it's sometimes just a complicated family situation. The council have to step in where a person is not being dealt with. So I will sometimes just call it of public health when there's been too much mucking about already when someone's been dead a couple of months and nobody's doing anything people are rowing about it. it's just at that point i'll cite dignity as an issue this person's dignity isn't intact and i'll cite the public health fact that no one's dealing with it mm. and that we need to do it yeah like i say such an interesting job you do there is literally all human life here even though you're actually oh yeah it with dead people it's uh it's, <laughs> it's more life in this job than most, I think, <laughs> ironically. Yeah. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we saw over the kicker with glee as we discuss all things women's sport. That's a skiing term, FYI, and yes, I did have to look it up. I'm hoping very much that I've used it in the correct context here. I start today's sporty section with some excellent news and, as ever, some less excellent news. So let's get the good bit over and done with so I can crack on with my moan. What? It's cathartic. Amazing, incredible news announced last week by FIFA that by 2027, the Women's Football World Cup prize money will match the men's. This is a huge step up. At the last Women's World Cup in 2019, the prize fund was $30 million, rising to $110 million for this year's upcoming tournament. This new improved amount is one quarter of the men's prize money at last year's Qatar World Cup, which, in case you can't do the maths yourself, was $440 million. So, great news. News I did not expect to hear any time soon, and I am chuffed to bits to be hearing it. But let's be honest, FIFA are 
famously not short of a quid or two, so I don't really understand what the delay in implementing this is. And I should also point out that this is not the same thing as equal wages. England players are now paid the same across men's and women's international teams, but this won't be the same for all countries, and the women obviously still earn a fraction of what the men earn at club level. So here's the bad news that I am quite disappointed by the reaction to this from People's Princess and Waistcoat Wearer of Dreams, one Mr Gareth Southgate gasps. In fact, Gareth pissed me off twice last week, firstly for including Kyle Walker currently under investigation by the police for indecently exposing himself in a Manchester bar in the England squad, and secondly for the straw man argument he presented against equal prize money. Lads, it brings me no pleasure at all to inform you that Southgate basically offered up the women can't fill stadiums argument. Oh, Gareth. It's funny because I basically do think of Gareth Southgate as a beacon of moral virtue, the modernist of all men and the perfect antidote to the toxic masculinity that characterises the men's game. So why the fuck would he peddle the line of red-faced fucktards tweeting like the world and indeed future employers aren't watching? You've got to look at the finances, says Southgate, because the women aren't bringing home the bacon in the same way as the men. That said, he wouldn't want his daughter to get paid less than a man in an office job, he says. Glad to hear it, Gareth. I'd like to highlight a point made by the journalist Tim Stillman. It's a great point which he made on Twitter last week, which is that the FA is a not-for-profit organisation and as such, those commercial pressures are not the same as they might be in the domestic leagues. And I'd now like to make the same point I've made a thousand times over and will continue to make until someone fucking listens, which is that literally everyone benefits financially from the development of the women's game. By all means, you can argue the toss about whether or not you want women's football to be commercialised in the same way as men's, but last time I checked, the going rate for a pencil case and a scarf is the same whether it's bought by a little boy or a little girl. There is money to be made here. Secondly, if you want to look at it from a moral perspective, the men's game has benefited massively from the same structural historic sexism that has prevented the development of the women's game. Arguably, there is a moral duty to now extend that benefit to women. It's disappointing to me that Mr Moral Compass himself, Gareth Southgate, hasn't taken the time to think about this before speaking on it. Speaking of prize money, I saw a poster for this year's US Open last week bearing the image of the iconic Billie Jean King in celebration of 50 years of equal prize money. Football, do better. Southgate, do better. Sorry, Indian Wells is what I wanted to talk to you about. After a pretty disappointing time since winning the US Open back in 2021, Emma Raducanu made a decent showing in California where she made it as far as the fourth round, at which point she was knocked out by top seed Iga Swiatek. Swiatek was knocked out herself in the semis by eventual winner Elena Rybakina. Well done to her. Why is Raducanu's form improving? Maybe it's to do with her amazing body transformation, which the Express Online saw fit to write two articles about in the last 24 hours. Apparently, the lanky teen has a bit more muscle on her now after adopting a different training regime. She basically looks the same to me, but good for her. We are a big fan of strong women on this podcast. And fuck you, The Express. On to Miami, where she faces Bianca Andreescu in the first round. Ouch. Finally, congratulations to Michaela Schifrin, champion of this year's Alpine Skiing World Cup in the overall category, her fifth title. 
She clocked 55.88 seconds in the giant slalom on Sunday to pick up her 88th World Cup win, which was her 138th podium finish. Earlier in the month, she'd broken Ingmar Stenmark's previously held record of 86 World Cup wins, but she now also breaks Lindsay Vonn's record of podium finishes. Well done to her. That is all from me this week. I'll be back next time with more women's sports. Mickey Nonan, Mickey Nonan, Mickey Nonan, <laughs> what did we watch this week? Can't talk now, I've just had to appear behind you in your bedroom. This week we watched Beetlejuice, Tim Burton's 1998 spiky, gothic, supernatural comedy that's just on the real people side of cartoon. I mean, so far so Tim Burton, eh? Well, yes, but also, following on as it does from Burton's directorial debut with Pee-wee's Big Adventure in 1985 and coming before his Batman in 1989, Beetlejuice is arguably the film that sets the Burton blueprint in stone. Where does uh, Edward Scissorhands fall in that? Later. Right, okay. So I'm going to start with a question. That Tim Burton blueprint, yay or nay? Depends. Um, yeah. I don't feel the same way about all of his films as I do about this film. Okay, I would agree with that. No, me neither, but possibly in a different way. (laughs) Possibly. Um, uh You've never seen this before, though, have you, Hannah? I hadn't, no. And, Jen, you have seen it before. Like 20,000 times, yeah. Yeah, the correct number of times. Beetlejuice certainly cemented his working relationship with film composer Danny Elfman, who had made his soundtrack debut on Pee-wee's Big Adventure and whose talent brings a whole dollop of attitude and atmosphere to Beetlejuice, bolstered by a couple of corking appearances from Harry Belafonte. Yes, Harry, I will jump in the line. Thanks very much. (laughs) Starring Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin as sweet as apple pie newly deads, Barbara and Adam Maitland, Jeffrey Jones and Catherine O'Hara. Oh. Catherine O'Hara, as the Dietzes, a couple of New York yuppies with questionable taste. Beetlejuice was a big deal for a then 17-year-old Winona Ryder in her first big role as teenage ghost scene goth Lydia. And then there is Michael Caton as our titular undead maniac, chewing the scenery, spitting it out, chewing it all over again in a Marmite scene-stealing performance a million miles away from his understated Batman that came next. Imagine, however, if you can... A Beetlejuice played by Sammy Davis Jr., who was actually Burton's first choice. Or indeed, Dudley Moore, and even, in the running, the fire and brimstone stand-up Sam Kinison. Burton's film is very different from Michael McDowell's original script, which forwent any lols for much more horror, including a rabid squirrel mutilating a nine-year-old child. Kind of glad that wasn't in there. Co-script writer Warren Scarron's Change the Tone was probably the biggest shift being to Beetlejuice himself, who went from overtly murderous to troublesome pervert. It did pretty well at the box office, eventually grossing just over $74.5 million in North America and becoming the 10th highest grossing film in 1988. Beaten by previous rated or dated Good Morning Vietnam, Moonstruck and Three Men and a Baby, and also keep an ear out, Big who Framed Roger Rabbit, and Die Hard. And it scored pretty positively with its contemporary critics too, as well as bagging an Oscar for Best Makeup, pipping mine and Jen's favourite Christmas movie, Scrooge, to the post. 
It's fair to say that the special effects haven't stood the test of time, mm. but also fair to say they weren't much cop to begin with, and purposely so. As you'll remember from our Mars Attacks rated or dated, that's the one with two Jack Nicholsons in it, Jen. Don't know if you remember that. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed, any Tim Burton film you've ever seen ever, Burton loves a B-movie. So it's no surprise that the SFX, which include, like, there's loads of them, stop motion, replacement animation, prosthetic makeup, puppetry, blue screen, took up just $1 million of the $15 million budget. A script titled Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian has existed for years, but has never been made. Yet, production starts on Beetlejuice 2, that is the working title, this May, with an expected release date of 2025. So yeah, while you're musing on what the plot of that one might be, here's the plot of this. Barbara and Adam Maitland are set to enjoy a two-week holiday in their beloved country home in Buttfuck Nowhere, Connecticut. Driving home from a trip to town to pick up supplies, their domestic bliss is disrupted by dying in a car accident. Not the brightest bulbs in the box, it takes them a while to click they're no longer in the land of the living, but a handbook for the recently deceased and the surreal technical hellscape outside the front door, complete with massive sandworms, get the message home. And then there's a fate worse than death. The almost offensively 80s Dietzes, Charles and Delia, who along with Delia's interior designer pal Otho, decide to give the Maitland's cherished home a modern, modern, question mark, makeover, <laughs> as hideous as Delia's sculptures. A couple of failed attempts to scare the Dietzes away later, all the Maitlands have achieved is a burgeoning friendship with teenager Lydia and Charles Dietz seeing a haunted house as a massive marketing opportunity. Finally, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice has his moment. It's showtime indeed as the ghost with the most swoops in to save the Maitlands and scare the bejesus out of the Dietzes. Just one small thing. He wants Lydia as his bride. No way, dude! Cue Sandworm. Alongside this, I think, pretty inventive premise, there are diversions into the procedural supernatural, a weary caseworker, a solid bit of social commentary on capitalism, some cheery versions of legitimately scary dealings with death, a confused plane load of American football players, and, of course, that Tim Burton aesthetic at, I'd argue, its strongest. And I'm looking at Hannah Dunleavy, and my first question is, I'm going to have to argue, aren't I? (laughs) (laughs) Um... No, because, I mean, if you like it, that's fine. I think if I had watched it when I was younger or I was even vaguely, you know, had seen it more than once, it it would have done something different to me. I'm not saying it's not good. I'm just saying I didn't enjoy watching it. May I have more detail on why you didn't enjoy watching it? Um, Well, it didn't really make me laugh, for one, and there is normally things in there that make me laugh. I mean, obviously, there are people in there that I do like, but there are also people in there that I don't like. I've never really been a fan of what Winona Ryder does. It doesn't really appeal to me. I think I find Beetlejuice himself, I mean, great idea, hold him back, use him sparingly, Mm, all of that. Do a Mickey (laughs) from Rocky. Yeah, exactly. Do that. That's great. And it is a really good performance. I just think he's a bellend and it's really sexualized bellendery and I don't like it. So perhaps I'm just being a po-faced 50-year-old, but it wasn't for me. Okay, fair enough. I think Beetlejuice as a character is, I mean, he's meant to be a bellend. Hmm. Yeah, but he's also meant to be funny, isn't he? 
Yeah, and he does make me laugh, though. So does he, he make you laugh, Jen? Laugh. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's like, as I said, I've watched it. I was probably too young to watch it the first time I watched it because it isn't, you know, it's not scary, but I think, like, possibly for an eight-year-old, maybe it would have been a bit scary. But I don't think I've ever been scared of it. I think there were bits of it that when I was a kid I found, like, gross or not very nice, but um, I don't think I ever found it scary. It was something that we'd recorded at some point, like, off the telly, so it was, like, something that we had on VHS, so we watched it loads and it coincides because it is just before but I think we watched it obviously a bit later my brother Michael was obsessed with Batman like went through a real like obsessed with Batman phase and I remember distinctly finding out that Batman was Beetlejuice and just being like what the (laughs) fuck like my mind was absolutely blown such different Um, performances in those two films from Keaton yeah yeah I think it's a great performance by him and I do think it's funny and he is gross but he's meant to be gross. Yeah. But when I was watching it last night I was thinking this is not the kind of thing that I would normally enjoy like because it's really really silly as well it's not and he's very very like he's a lot isn't he and that's not the kind of thing that I enjoy very much. Mm. So I think possibly if I watched it now having not watched it that many times as a kid maybe I wouldn't have enjoyed it as much but it's just like putting on like a comfy pair of slippers like it's so Mm. you know I'm it's so familiar to me yeah I think it's aged quite well in that I don't think I was worried when you said we're going to watch this because I was a bit like oh god I can think of things that would not have stood up that well but I think it's aged better than I thought it would I agree. I'd seen it quite recently because I do really love Beetlejuice just as a film. And I think obviously it looks shoddy in lots of ways, but it always looks shoddy. So actually that might be interesting for Hannah. Did you just think, wow, the the effects are really dated because you had never seen it before to know that they always look that way? Well, not really, because to be fair, you know, we had seen Mars Attacks and I'm well aware that he goes for the Mm -hmm. sort of B-movie look. So, yeah. I mean, I think it, it, I mean, the outside bit looks really fucking shoddy. The the snakes and that looks really bad. So I think that it probably looked slightly better contemporaneously when you consider like, you know, the craft and shit like that was quite a long time after this. Mm. It probably, you know, Tron, you know, that we were all like, <laughs> wowzers. And, uh, and so I think it probably did look better at the time. But yeah, I mean, I'm well aware that his stuff looks a bit shit as a rule. The snakes always looked, or the snake, there's just the one, isn't there? The snake yeah. always the sandworm always looked like plasticine it always looked ray harryhausen which i guess is exactly what he's going Mm. for the women i like to talk about the women because i think with lydia and delia and indeed barbara got some pretty strong females in this yeah yeah definitely i mean yes i agree i didn't really like any of them but yeah you don't you didn't like barbara she's what is there not to like she's so nice She's so sweet in her ugly shoes. Well, that's it. She's just like sweet and sweet and yeah. Oh, I find them really endearing. I find the couple like, and I think that's like, maybe that's the thing that either makes it for you or breaks it for you, I guess. But like, I, I find them really endearing. They're just like a young couple who love each other. They've got a very normal life. It just is what it is. And they die tragically young. And that's, you know, 
objectively sad, isn't it? Mm. And then to have the indignity beyond that of the fact that these pricks want to move in and like fuck everything up that you've sort of like worked to build. I don't know. They're just normal, aren't they? It's a funny play, an interesting play, I think, on possession as well, because yeah, okay, they're like, well, we're stuck in this house. These pricks, as you put it, are moved in. But it's like, there's no law against what the Dietzes are doing. They bought a house that is legitimately for sale and they want to put their mark on it. If you don't like that mark, then why do they still get a say? It's it's interesting, isn't it? Because the only reason they don't want them there is because they don't like their taste in wallpaper. I don't know. Mm. It's about like a clash of values. Like they are sort of the representation of this small town in buttfuck nowhere, as you put it. And like these gentrifying bastards want to come and make everything different. I wonder how many people involved in changing homes or whatever it was called would have liked to call Beetlejuice out on Lawrence Clowell and Bowen. <laughs> Coming in here, painting everything pink. Get out. Giving me a feature wall, prick. <laughs> I mean, better that than painting it like whatever sort of spray painting it graphite, which is what every single thing in this house seems to have been. <laughs> the eighties spray painted with, yeah, the yeah. 80s. It's like a teenage boy's from the eighties bedroom, isn't it? They just needed a poster of a Ferrari <laughs> that had been done. I quite like the women. I think that the women take the lead in lots of ways. Like, I mean, Delia is not very nice, but she is played by Catherine O'Hara and she, to me, gets the best scene, which is that dinner party. And uh, is it called Deo? I think it's called Deo, the song, the Harry Belafonte yeah. song. Yeah. That scene still cracks me up and I've seen it a million times. We used to have a woman who, when I was in the civil service, my first job in the civil service, there was a woman who ran the unit that I worked in and uh, we used to have, like... Friday afternoon like cakes and drinks and whatever and she'd get everyone together in, in the breakout area and uh, and then talk a bit about targets that we hadn't met and stuff like that. I'm really glad Jen that cake was the only word that you didn't put in bunny ears <laughs> that's stuff like there was actually cake. I know there was really cake. That's great. And she used to when when it is like that's enough organized fun now you have to talk about the targets you'd missed to get everyone's attention she'd like clap her hands and she'd shout Deo! Deo! (laughs) And it was just like the most cringeworthy thing imaginable. Who would you call Beetlejuice on? Would it be that woman? Possibly. Possibly. (laughs) Although she was quite funny after she'd had a few wines. Um, I would call him on no woman at all because he is a sex pest. He is a massive sex pest. What I will say though is he does get his comeuppance. He does. Hmm? in In quite a funny way as well yeah he's not forgiven like no one kind of goes with it he's he's fought off the whole time he is meant to be horrific and nasty and just this horrible piece of work and actually he gets punished for it or at least he has been punished for it for the last 35 years until he gets a fucking sequel let's see if our horrible perv is going to be made a hero in 2025 is he in the sequel they've not announced cast details so when Beetlejuice mm. Goes Hawaiian was in the offing, which was pretty soon after the original Beetlejuice was made. This was like the script was written. Keaton was on board. People were on board. Burton was on board. And yet then they mm. kept just getting involved with more Batmans, basically. Just, oh, let's just do another Batman. And so then it got shelved, put on a bat burner, and now it's back. So the only cast that I could find confirmed, apart from Burton directing, is Jenna Ortega, who is... Wednesday Adams in the new series Wednesday. Right. 
Keaton's 71, though, so whether he... Well, it's a lot of makeup, isn't it? So you might... I was just thinking you might get away with it as Keaton because there's a lot of makeup involved. But I think the ghosts, that's tricky, isn't it? How how are you going to stop the ghosts from ageing over the last 30 years? True. I think Baldwin might be out of action, to be honest with you. Ah, yeah, good point. (laughs) I thought, if it wasn't Keaton, that they should get Sam Rockwell. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's good. I think it's a great role because it is so over the top. And it's the one that stands out. And as Hannah mentioned, they they keep it back. And and when you do get it, you get it in very small doses. It's only in the film for 14 and a half minutes in total. Mm -hmm. And the film is only an hour and a half as well, which is (laughs) like, as you know, that's how I like it. The only thing I would say, if I had to come up with like one criticism... And I don't think it really matters because it's not a serious film and, it, you know, it is supposed to be a laugh, isn't it? Although a laugh, you know, there's some vaguely serious points made, but it is just, you know, fun. Is that I don't think Beetlejuice's motivation, like I don't, the, the plot is pretty thin. Do you know what I mean? Like, what is he actually trying to achieve? Chaos? I think, I think he just... But why? Because he loves what's... chaos. That's the thing. I I think like if I was gonna pick anything, I'd just say that the the plot was a bit thin, and maybe they could have sort of explained a bit better why he eats bugs and wants to marry children. I mean, <laughs> his motivation doesn't seem that doesn't seem that important really in the scheme of I things. I think he's bored, isn't he? He's just bored. He's been dead for ages, and he's just bored. So he is a mischief, and that wanting to marry children. Is so that he yeah. can be back on the land of, and on the side of the living. I think that's what he gets from that deal. I like his walk. I just think his walk's funny. I just think everything Keaton does, this reprehensible character, just absolutely <laughs> tickles really? me. I mean, I'm really out of step. I know because I know loads of people who really like Beetlejuice. You know, I've got friends. You know, and, and right. cousins who love Beetlejuice. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I. The, but that. So my point being, I know a lot about Beetlejuice without ever having seen it because people are constantly making references yeah. to it. But I, I don't know why I didn't watch it, why I never got around to watching it. But yeah, there was clearly a time for me to watch it and enjoy it. And that time has passed. I think it's interesting because actually a, a comparison that I wouldn't have made, but is interesting to me now I've read it and sort of fits with what you've just said, Hannah, is people talked about The Princess Bride and that kind of silly mm. sense of humour. And that was another one that you were like, I think if I'd seen... Because obviously your family kept watching it without you. But that, yeah. you were like, I think if I'd seen it then, I would love it now. There would be that nostalgia for yeah. it now that makes it a good film still. And I, I, there's yeah. definitely some nostalgia at play for me with Beetlejuice because it's so, mm. like Jen said, it's that sort of comfort blanket of a film. But I do think the premise still really stands up. I think it's quite a simple idea executed with just bags of creativity and invention and so it does still really stand up for me the concept of them being ghosts is a bit it's sort of whatever you would call it law is a bit weird isn't it in as much as there are things that i would assume that you know they don't appear to be so much haunting these people as just being there at the same time as them Mm. so for example they got that book now i would assume that that book would be invisible to people who weren't Mm. actually dead but it's not So there are some elements of it that I didn't quite understand. You know, I thought, what is the law on this? Sort of how solid are they as as entities? Are they two universes going on at the same time? You know, the house that the dead people live in. 
And I, I could never quite clear that up in my head. Well, they say that the living don't want to see them. Won't they see say them, that a yeah. few times, don't they? That they can't. That it's not impossible for them to see them, but they they sort of won't. Yeah. Mm. There's a kind of weird juxtaposition of, of a positivity and optimism to like dying isn't the end and blah blah mm. blah. But also, it just seems like a lot of paperwork after you die. There seems <laughs> to be a lot of admin. Okay, so the Maitlands just go back to being in their house and they can't leave their house, which is annoying, but they love their house. Whereas some people have to keep working. This seems unfair. Like, where is... There's no real justice or fairness or equality in the world of the dead either. Thank God you left the civil service, Jen. Quite. Fucking wouldn't want to be stuck doing that for eternity. Jesus. <laughs> that was the thing that I always really loved. Sorry, it just made me think of Juno, their caseworker. I really mm. loved the little details that seem much more obvious to me now than when I watched it as a kid, I guess, of like when she is smoking and you yeah, see that it comes, it comes out, out of her neck and just like the the guy who's clearly been run over. So he's basically flat Stanley in the mail room. I liked all the, the in the waiting room when there's someone who's like, it's just, is always going to have a shark attached to their leg. <laughs> just like mm. seems uh, weird, but also fun. That sort of very dark fantasy that is now incredibly Tim Burton. I, I really like that. I think the other thing that you see in it as well is that like, which I've because it's a long time since I've seen it. Is you're like okay, so the nightmare before Christmas, the corpse bride. You're literally like you just fucking dialed those in, didn't you? Because that is literally taken from there and put there. It's is yeah, really, really, very much what became his style, isn't it? Definitely. Beetlejuice, rated, dated, or taste of metal. Yeah, definitely taste of metal to me. <laughs> yeah. I still think it stands up and I really enjoy it. So yeah, rated from me. And a rated from me. Well done, Beetlejuice. See you in 2025? Maybe. Mm-hmm. What are we watching next week? I'm bringing some Catherine fucking Hepburn to the table. Ooh. We're going to watch Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Lovely stuff. I'll get my smart trousers out. Standard issue for all women.